Welcome to the Craft Brewery Finance Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers to provide you with tips, tactics, and strategies to improve financial results in your brewery. I'm your host, Kerry Shumway, a CPA, CFO for a brewery, and former CFO for a beer distributor. I've spent the last 20 years using finance to help improve financial results in our beer business, and now I'm helping other craft breweries do the same. Are you ready to take your brewery financial results to the next level? Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Craft Brewery Finance Podcast. My name is Kerry Shumway and I'll be your host. Today I sit down with attorney John Semankowitz from the Beer Law Center located in Raleigh, North Carolina. John's firm is dedicated to helping breweries run a business. We cover a number of legal questions and considerations facing breweries these days. For example, we talk about force majeure. What is this contract provision? How is it being used these days during this pandemic? And what are the essentials that brewery owners and managers need to know? John has also written a book on beer law, What Brewers Need to Know. So we dig into the details of that, and John shares best practices that brewers should be thinking about these days from a legal perspective. So for now, please enjoy this conversation with John Semankowitz from the Beer Law Center. John S., welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. This is awesome. Great to have you here. So give the listeners some background on your firm and the services you provide. So what kind of markets you serve, type of clients, and who might be an ideal client for you from a size or a need perspective? Okay. Yeah. Well, um, because I'm a lawyer, you know, uh, I, I always preface things by saying, you know, I'll take money from anybody, whatever they want. I'll, I'll that That's fine. Um, I spent several years practicing what I call threshold law which was any kind of problem that came over the threshold. That's the kind of law I practiced. Um, But I I quickly got tired of that. And for about the last 10 years or so, um, I've been practicing exclusively what I refer to as alcohol law. Uh, And so what we do, um, we're a small firm. Beer Law Center is a small firm. Uh, I, I describe us as being a generalist with an alcohol overlay. So we do everything from helping new people or people form their new LLCs or corporations, licensing, contracts, leases, trademarks. We've done a lot of uh, helping people buy and sell breweries, wineries, distilleries lately. Um, So we try and be sort of your cradle to grave, you know, home for legal services for the alcohol industry. Um, But that also means in certain situations, I'm going to say, time out, I need to help find you a specialist. Um, we don't do a lot of litigation, right? So we'll, we'll get in the middle of a, like a distribution agreement or something like that. That's, that's in dispute. But, you know, if you're sued by the state for a workers comp issue or something like that, I'm going to help you go find somebody that can do that for you. That, that focuses on that area of the practice. So where I think we can provide some value and where we work with a lot of clients is, is on that. What am I doing? How does this work? How, why is this different than running a, dry cleaners or why is this different than this and and helping people kind of try and navigate the um, counterintuitive world of alcohol laws because god knows they're weird <laughs> they're weird and they're ambiguous they're hard to decipher and, and it's a highly regulated industry right so it's it it's is. kind of a challenge where it's very regulated yet the regulations themselves are really subject to a broad interpretation well, and I have this conversation a lot that, that you know, <clears throat> just because uh, alcohol is readily available 
doesn't mean it's not incredibly regulated. Opening a brewery is not that much different than opening a pharmacy, right? It, you're dealing with a highly regulated substance. Um, and though we're pouring it out in, by pints instead of little bottles of, of pills, the federal government, the state government still really concerned about what you do and doing it right and documenting everything. Um, and in fact, especially when it comes down to alcohol laws, you're saying it being about counterintuitive, I often tell clients, um, they, they'll ask me, you know, what are the rules for this? I'm like, well, it's a lot easier if you tell me what you want to do and I'll tell you how to do it than to try and actually understand the rules. Because yeah. it's, unless you're in this every day, it just looks like a bowl of spaghetti and you're trying to follow one noodle through this. It, it, it's just really tough if you're like trying to run a business and make beer and do all these other things and then pick up, you know, the statute book and go, oh, so. Well, what does that mean? You know, those those sort of things. Absolutely. Now, are, are your clients primarily breweries or do you work with others um, in the alcohol industry? You had mentioned uh, distilleries and things like sure. that. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll take money from anybody. Um, but no, uh, I'd say probably 60 to 70 percent of my clients are, are breweries. Over the last probably three or four years, we've had more and more clients come uh, that are either starting wineries, distilleries. I've got a few, uh, you know, craft uh, um, just retailers, craft beer bars, you know, and, and restaurants and that sort of thing. But most of my clients are producers. Uh, and, you know, a lot of them are breweries opening a distillery or, hey, we want to go ahead and be able to do cider and, and expanding into the wine side, uh, those sort of things. Um, and over the last uh, three years as well, uh, we've also expanded into additional states. So, um, I often talk to clients. I'll get a call from somebody in Utah uh, saying, hey, how do I do this? And I'm like, well, I'm not licensed in Utah, so I can't tell you about the Utah ABC laws. I can tell you about the federal stuff and I can tell you about federal trademark and those sort of things. But your state specific stuff, I'm not going to be able to help you there. Well, it turns out in the last few years I've I've worked and gotten I'm now licensed or our firm is now licensed in North Carolina, Virginia and West Virginia and D.C., so we can do sort of cradle to grave in those places. Um, and then we still handle federal issues, TTB, trademark, stuff like that for anybody in the country. Gotcha. Okay. And obviously, we're, we're recording this middle of June 2020. We're, we're still in our COVID-19 crisis. How has that changed your practice or how has it changed uh, maybe the questions you're getting from your clients? Well, I'll say that one thing I do like, I won't say I like, but one sort of benefit of this whole COVID thing is nobody's there to ju judge you when you day drink. <laughs> that, that is a great point. That so should be a t-shirt or bumper sticker. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm at two o'clock in the afternoon enjoying my, my, my homebrewed uh, best bitter. So um, which makes answering client questions a lot easier sometimes. Uh, but no, the, the kinds of questions people are asking, um, there was a lot, a lot of questions originally about the, the PPP loans and what stimulus funds were available and, and how those were used and forgiveness, uh, and just a tremendous amount of no information out there for a long time. And, and then we started getting some information, then we got contradicting information and then they changed some stuff. And so a lot of it is a lot of coaching I've been doing lately is here's the best I can tell you right now. We don't know. 
right? And so trying to help people deal with that uncertainty of you need to make the right business decision now and do what's right for the business, but you also need to weigh your risks on things, um, you know, and kind of trying to counsel, yes, go apply for whatever loans, funds you can get, but be judicious about, you know, how you do that so that if in fact you do actually have to pay all of this back, you haven't just saddled yourself with debt you can't service, right? Mm. A lot of those questions. And then right now, of course, as most of the country is in different stages of reopening, whatever the hell that means, um, there's a lot of questions about, well, can I do this? You know, well, can I do outside seating if I can't do inside seating? And what does that mean for this? And the, the ABC said on premise, what premise are they talking about there? And so trying to help people navigate the, okay, well, in the normal world, here's what this would look like. Uh, in COVID world, here's the way I think that's interpreted, you know, um, and, and kind of helping people understand, well, what are they concerned about? What are the, what's the worst that could happen? What are they going to do about it? And, um, I have to say, I've generally been really surprised, um, and pleased, uh, the regulators I've talked to, uh, and the regulators that I work with on a fairly regular basis, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, um, the ABCs have been actually really trying hard to bend over backwards to keep people in business and, and, you know, create rules that are, are, I won't say pleasant, but at least doable or livable. And okay. You know, for example, in North Carolina, one of the ones was, um, we allowed curbside service and delivery right to people's cars, uh, even in a parking lot. That's not part of the permitted premises where previous to that they had to like, leave their car to get something, right? They had to go in and pick up whatever it is and bring it back. Uh, you know, those sort of things, regulators have been saying, okay, we'll do this, we'll do this. And, and I think that's made a huge difference for folks just being able to, to, to keep any money coming in the door in some cases. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Folks have had to really shift their business models, get creative, try to find new revenue streams. And that's, that's been helpful. So, sure. and that is probably the scariest thing to regulators is when people get creative, <laughs> Right. Good point. Because uh, I always think about one of my favorite movies is like The Princess Bride. And, and I always think about, um, uh, was it Inigo Montoya? And he said, you keep using that word. I don't think that means what you think it means. Right. And they're like, well, we can do this. Uh, not not really. I mean, that's that's a good idea, but that's not what this says. And until somebody says you can do that, it's probably a bad idea. Right. You're right. Um, so there's a lot of, well, we can, we can turn, um, so a, a local bar next to, to, or not next to us, but here uh, near where I live, um, the rule was that bars couldn't open, but restaurants could. This was a bar that served no food. So they decided to start serving food. And literally they went out and bought like dozens of boxed lunches, you know, with a, with a barbecue sandwich and some fries and a hush puppy and brought those to, to the, the bar and were selling those independently. That's not exactly what they meant by a restaurant. You're still not, you know, health code and all these other things. And sure enough, they got a call and got shut down. But, you know, we kind of help them work through that if we can. You got to say that box lunch sounds pretty good as you just described it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that 
I try to do with the podcast is give folks uh, some actionable items. Mm. So from a legal perspective, do you have any must do's for brewery owners and managers, anything they really should be focusing on from a, from a legal perspective right now? Well, I think for me, this breaks into two pieces. One is sort of what is that, that question regarding COVID right now and, and our, our current pandemic situation. And the other is, in the, in the normal world, whatever the hell normal is going to be, what are those things? Um, and so the, the, the thing I have been stressing to clients left, right, and center through this pandemic is your single biggest priority is transparency, right? Whether it's your, <clears throat> your landlord, your um, employees, the regulators, law enforcement, whatever it is, you want to be completely transparent about what you're trying to do, why you're trying to do it, and make sure that they don't think you're trying to hide the ball, right? Because right now, I think the the major, uh, at least what I'm seeing, and this is purely speculation in my opinion, uh, this is one of those don't quote me on this things. Uh, what I'm seeing is that the, the regulators and law enforcement are really only looking to, to stop, shut down, or, or I won't say punish, but catch the people who are trying to game the system. Right, that are trying to to uh, push the boundaries too far or get away with something. And ninety nine percent of all of my clients, all the industry, I think for that matter, are really just trying to make a living. And, and law enforcement regulators, your employees, everybody gets that, right? So as long as you can be transparent and go, this is what I thought I could do. You're telling me I can't do that. I'll stop right now. You know, or uh, I was working with a. Um, a client a couple of weeks ago, and they wanted to have a social distancing festival. And I said, oh, you've put two words together that nobody's going to like to hear right now. Um, and he said, yeah, I'm worried about somebody calling, complaining and shutting us down. I said, okay, well, then what you want to do is be as transparent as you possibly can. And in fact, I'd call the city police, I'd call your local a ALE agent and say, here's what we're planning on doing. Here's the way we're going to set this up. Why don't you come out two hours before the festival and walk? we'll walk you through it. I'll show you where we've got X's on the ground to get people, uh, keep people apart. I'll show you how we've got signage that says, after you get your, your beer here, please go to this area and don't congregate. And walk through what you're doing about that so that people don't just walk up and go, hey, there's, there's this thing I don't think people should be doing. We better stop them, right? Um, so I think that's been really helpful working with law enforcement during this time. When it comes to particularly the uncertainty around the business, you know, even the, the folks that are doing quote unquote well are really just surviving relative to what they were doing, you know, previously when, when again, I'd say 90% of the industry, re, you know, relied on their taproom sales and, and on-premise sales. So even the ones that are doing quote unquote well right now, it's important to stay transparent with your employees when you're like, okay, I've got to furlough you and this is why. And these are the, these are the decision points that, that I have to make to be able to bring you back, right? Or offer you back, or here's the, the process I'm going to bring people back at. So it doesn't look haphazard. It doesn't look you know, like you're favoring uh, certain people over others. Um, all of those sort of things think through the consequences, think through how this looks from the outside and try and be transparent about why you're doing what you're doing. 
And for the most part, I think you're going to be fine, right? Obviously, don't intentionally violate stuff that you know is 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 going to wrong wrong or going to get you into trouble. But if it's a good faith mistake right now, I think there's a lot of deference for that sort of across the board. Um, you know, for example, uh, here in North Carolina, um, one of the shutdown orders, one of the sheriffs locally said, we're treating this enforcement as education primarily. We're not arresting people for this unless it's egregious or repeat offenders or or something like that. People that are trying to game or get away with something. Okay. Um, so that's probably the number one priority I think you can have for sort of everything right now for your business during this COVID you know, pandemic, because that's also going to go a long way if, for example, you get audited because of your PPP loan or um, after, when you apply for your PPP loan forgiveness, they ask, well, how did you spend the money? Well, here's how I spent the money and, and be transparent around that. And, you know, um, I've even suggested folks put it in a separate bank account and transfer it over when you meet payroll. Right. So you can say, here's where the money came in. Here's where it went out. So, again, it doesn't it doesn't look like you're trying to hide anything. Again, that's what regulators look for. Um, outside of COVID, outside of this pandemic, what do I advise clients as to things they should be thinking about? Um, I always tell people you want to keep your options open and. That means staying flexible around what opportunities are out there and the folks that have done fairly well with, you know, pivoting their business to, you know, packaged product or pivoting their business to um, off premise consumption. uh, Those are the folks who have been sort of flexible and thinking, you know, have a a couple of different irons in the fire and not just putting all their eggs in one basket. Uh, And I think this has really taught us the value of diversifying your, your portfolio and diversifying, if not your primary means of income, at least some alternate um, uh, alternate streams. Folks who had no packaged business or had no um, distribution business and were relying solely on their tap room, uh, on-premise consumption, and had no merchandise, those folks struggled and are probably continuing to struggle. Those who had, well, I've got some offsite, I've got some, you know, people taking you know, the to-go business, I've got some that's on-site, most of my money's coming from on-site consumption. Okay, how do we leverage that? Um, there was a great push during um, American Craft Beer Week back at the beginning of May, where it was, hey, now's the time to buy gift certificates for your local brewery. Buy those ahead. That goes to that's money in those people's pockets. Keep that business going, and they'll honor that when it comes, you know, later on. And that was a great way for people to go. Okay, I can still get that income stream. I can still sell gift certificates um, for either, you know, in the tap room two months from now, or for to go packages two weeks from now. But you had to have that infrastructure in place. You had to have a way that you knew that that was how that was going to work, and so. I think it was probably a struggle for somebody whose gift certificates were literally a piece of paper that wrote, they wrote IOU on two bottles of beer, right? So thinking about that sort of stuff um, is probably one of the things I think this is going to point us to is, is 
we had a really good long road of a lot of growth and a lot of really impressive growth and a lot of really good numbers over the last, what, eight years probably around taproom sales. And even up till, you know, March of this year, it was all about pushing, you know, maximizing your taproom sales. The folks who put all their eggs in that basket probably struggled the most with, with COVID. Um, and we're seeing now some of the larger breweries or regional breweries trying to close, um, you know, tap rooms or, or remote tap rooms or secondary tap rooms because they, they, they can't support that any longer. So that would be the one I think now and sort of going forward, you got to think about what else could happen. Obviously, nobody, nobody expected this uh, or this situation, but you have to, to some extent, plan for the unknown, too. Mm. Yeah, it's really a wake-up call. Contingency planning, backup planning. We, you know, we we throw these words around, but when when everything's going fine, you're like, ah, contingency for what? I, you know, want to continue just doing what I'm doing, and then you get smacked upside the head with this. And uh, yeah, hopefully, folks can come out of this. We can collectively come out of this and uh, remember it and sort of build on the lessons that we've learned, which is it can happen again, you know. And I hope it doesn't. But if we can prepare to the extent we can, you know, do the things you you just elaborated on those, you know, diversification is huge. Yeah. You know, really, really being flexible, having those options. I think that's, it's a well, and it's about, advice. you can only plan for the things you know about, right? But you need to have contingency plans for things you don't know about. And that's, that's really what contingency should be is, you know, the unknown unknowns instead of the known unknowns, if you will. Right. What is your take on how states are going to respond relative to the loosening of regulations? So during the pandemic, they've we've they've allowed certain things that perhaps would have been uh, not allowed before, you know, e-commerce and home delivery and things like that. So what's your sense on whether those are going to revert back to the way they were or if any of those changes might become permanent? Well, it's interesting because, you know, kind of watching what different states are doing, um, some states are already moving towards ensconcing that 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 increased freedom, you know, permanently. Virginia is looking at some options. Um, I think New Jersey is also talking about, you know, making some of their COVID changes permanent. Um, I think states are going to fall into one of two categories, sort of post this. I think the knee jerk reaction is going to be, well, we had this temporary rule in place that crisis is over. We're revoking that temporary rule. Everything goes back to where it was. Um, on the other hand, I think overall, what we've seen is, is that people can be fairly responsible about this. Um, there have been some issues, particularly around home delivery, where, you know, okay, and this is one of my soapboxes for the industry, huge fan of home delivery. I do think it's not done particularly well in some cases. And when you don't have a good system, whether it's you as a retailer delivering this to a product or using somebody like Drizzly or, or a, an alcohol uh, delivery company, if there's not a good system to ensure that the person who ordered the product is the one it's being delivered to and that that person is over the correct age, you invite potential problems, right? Um, and... When you look at things like, I'll say, Uber Eats or um, Order Up or Grubhub or any of those sort of things where they're using an independent contractor 
to deliver that stuff. They're not actually an employee. That's a pretty high turnover possibility. And they don't have a vested interest in making sure that they're compliant, right? They're, they have a vested interest in making sure it's quick and they get a good review. Not that it's quick, they get a good review and it went to the right person at the right time. Um, so there've been a lot of articles recently about, you know, well, we followed this, um, uh, this delivery to this person and it was handed to somebody that was 17 years old. That's a problem. Um, and my, my sort of soapbox for the industry is we've got to get a handle on that or the regulators will do it for us. And I'd much rather have, you know, some industry, this is the way this is going to be done. And here are the best practices. And we try and self-regulate around that, you know, or an opt-in program or, or something where, you know, this is how we want to encourage responsible drinking at home, even through delivery and show that sort of compliance before, you know, an ABC somewhere gets worried that, you know, we're providing, you know, uh, beer to kegger, you know, kegging parties for, for high school students, right. Or something like that. But let me set that aside for a second. That was my, my, again, my little soapbox there. Um, overall, whether it's curbside service delivery, um, some States are even allowing cocktails to go, which, you know, I was just sitting meeting with uh, somebody from our ABC the other day and they're just shaking their heads. It's like, there's no way in hell we'd ever do that. Like, well, don't, it, you know, in North Carolina, it was 60 degrees in June. So hell may be freezing over here pretty shortly. Um, so I don't write off any of those chances. Um, but what I've seen of that stuff is that there hasn't been any real issue, right? There hasn't been a, uh, a huge uptick in, in drunken and disorderly conduct. There hasn't been a huge uptick in underage consumption. There hasn't been, you know, people dying of alcohol poisoning because they could get it delivered at home instead of having to go to the bar to get it. Um, so I think what's going to happen is some states are going to retract that, um, that, that temporary rule. And then the industries in those states are going to kind of push back and go, well, why can't we make that permanent? And then you'll see that that legislation in the next the next legislative session, right? The next time the the, the legislature meets, somebody will propose a bill to, to make those permanent. Uh, and then I think the other camp is states that are going to look at this and go, that's not so bad. Let's just leave it that way. And they just adopt the rule uh, permanently. Uh, and I think that's going to be sort of independent. You know, each state's going to look at that a little bit differently uh, depending on how they're regulated. Uh, but I am very hopeful that some of the changes we've seen, whether it's curbside service or delivery um, uh, or in some cases the, the cocktails to go, uh, I'm very hopeful those things are going to become permanent. Uh, I, you know, if I had to look into my crystal ball, I might have to wipe it off a little bit. But I think that's in there somewhere. I think that's that's probably going to happen. OK, tell me about this thing called force majeure, including. Oh. Did I pronounce it right? But what is this force majeure? How is it being used these days by breweries? I know it's something I've seen in all lots of contracts that we've done. I, I have a general understanding of it, but frankly, I've never been in a situation where it could actually uh, be used. So, could you explain that what it what it is and and how is it being used these days? Well, I, I will flippantly reply first that you know it's sort of like, well, what's the soup du jour? What's the soup of the day? Force majeure, that's a major force. That's what that is. And, and that, 
that's all that translates to is is some you know a big force. Um, and the idea behind force majeure is what happens if something bad happens that's beyond the control of the parties? What do we do about that? I apologize. We're down the street from a fire department. You probably like something bad's happening behind you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're making s'mores right over there. Does that? Okay, no. no um, um, so force majeure is about what if something bad happens that nobody could control? Uh, and there was a lot of discussion initially when this, when, when states started shutting down, you know, can we use a force majeure, um, clause in a contract to get out of the contract, modify the contract, particularly around leases? Um, and the answer was, well, the answer was maybe my answer was you should have thought about that when you signed the contract, not now. Uh, cause unfortunately at that point, right. The, the force majeure clause is in that section of most contracts that people think of as quote, as boilerplate. Um, and I can't tell you how many people have said, well, I don't, I don't need to pay an attorney to write boilerplate. It's not really boilerplate if it's something you're worried about, right? And you, you don't want to just cut and paste from one to the other if it's a mix of difference, right? And so, you know, I worked with several clients that were like, you know, can I use my force majeure clause to, to not pay rent this month? I don't know. Send me your lease and let's look at the, the, the way it's written. And there was a, it, it's surprising how much creativity you can get around a couple of words because I had several that were like any government emergency. Oh, great. That means we can use this now as an excuse to at least talk to the, to the, to the landlord can we do some rent abatement? Can we do something else? Um, or I saw things that were natural disaster. Ooh, is this a natural disaster? Well, it's not a man-made disaster, you know, despite what the conspiracy theorists think. Um, I really don't think it's 5G, but that's beside the point. Um, you know, but, and then I had some that were very specific around weather and earthquake and flood. That was it. Okay. Virus isn't in there, right? Pandemic isn't in there. We can't do anything with this. Yet at that point, your best chance is to throw yourself on the mercy of your landlord, which quite frankly worked really well because the alternative was in going out of business in some cases. And I had that discussion with some landlords that was like, well, you could go ahead and, and, you know, evict my client. Who do you think is going to rent your building for the next 30 to 60 days? Probably nobody because nobody's in business right now or nobody can can do what my client can do. So let's work out something else. Um, but the more broadly a force majeure clause is written, the more it favors the tenant or the or one or the other of the parties. Um, generally, force majeure is is written to do one of two things. One, either abate rent, right? Or abate something, you know, okay, we're for the period of this, um, uh, situation, we're not going to charge you rent or we're going to charge you a reduced rent, or, uh, you don't have to perform the contract for these 60 days until this thing is lifted or whatever. Um, or it's gener it's geared towards, we can agree to terminate it or one or other side of the, pro of the parties can terminate it. 
Um, and that was a huge issue for folks who were in the process of starting maybe a secondary or tertiary location that was, hey, I just signed this lease. Now I may not be able to open that location for another nine months. That makes it completely financially infeasible for us anymore. Can I get out of this agreement? The answer is maybe. It depends on how it was written to begin with. So um, what I look for in that force majeure is um, what does it require happen? Is it either party can terminate in their sole discretion? Okay, that's, that's good. But really what that does is says that's a negotiating point. That lets me go to a landlord or the other party in the contract and go, hey, we could terminate this. We don't want to. Here's what we want instead. Right. And you get some creative solutions. A lot of my not a lot, but several of my clients have been able to go, hey, let's take can we pay half rent for the next 90 days? And that other half, let's tack on to the end, you know, so our last three months are at a 50 percent increase or something like that. Um, and generally, I've seen landlords pretty pretty open to that. Um, so when you see the, the either party can terminate, well, it's probably a point to, to negotiate because that's your leverage of, well, I could just walk away if I wanted to. Nobody really wants to do that. Um, or the other one, like I said, which is, is there some sort of rent abatement um, or, or some predefined, here's how we're going to handle this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't realize there were that many variations on that clause. I did. I would. You could put me in the camp of was it just boilerplate stuff? So I think that's that's a that's a uh, I think a great piece of advice for folks to look at your contracts. What does your language uh, actually say relative to the circumstances? Uh, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know it could get so fine tuned in, in terms of delineating a, an earthquake versus a virus or excluding one or the other. That's that's really interesting. So. Well, and in certain places, I've, I've seen the other one now, uh, force majeure. What about protests? Mm-hmm. What about, you know, some of the, the uh, we'll call it civil unrest lately. You know, my office is in downtown Raleigh and we had, we were very fortunate, but our neighbors had windows broken and so forth. Whose insurance covers that? What does that mean for my rent? Do I still have to pay full rent when I can't use the place because, you know, somebody set a fire out front? So a lot of this, again, it, it's, it's just like you said, when things are going well, you don't tend to think about some of that stuff. Um, and sometimes it's hard to try and address it later. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I heard so we're, these are contracts, but otherwise known as agreements. And I heard someone say, uh, you know, think of it as a disagreement. So you really want to consider those things when you disagree What's the language and then make sure you can live with it if, if that circumstance arises. So. Yeah, I had one today. I was uh, working on something for a client and the language they said is, we agree to do this if the other party agrees to do this. And that was in the contract. I'm like, well, that doesn't help you at all. Because if somebody, if they just say, no, I don't agree to that, what doesn't say what happens then, right? It just says now, now we've got a disagreement, you know? So no, I think that's a good way to put that. I'm going to I'm going to use that. <laughs> well, let's let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about your book. Okay, uh, yeah. So you've written a book on beer law. Uh, why don't you tell folks about it? What, what was the genesis of it? Um, what was the process of writing it? And you know what what'll what's in the book, and what are, will people find there? Well, so I wrote the book because I'm lazy. 
And let me tell you how wrong that assumption was. Okay. Um, because, you know, doing what I do, I get a lot of the same questions, right? You know, what about this? How does this work? I, I you know, I, I've, when somebody calls me and asks about trademark, I'm like, okay, here's my 15 minute spiel. Ready? Start. And I, I talk nonstop for 15 minutes. Please hold all your questions to the end. And, you know, cause it's, it's a lot of the same stuff. I know you're going to ask about this. I'm getting to that in point three. Hold stay with me. Um, so I was hoping with the book, I could take a lot of that stuff that people ask me about and put it somewhere that I don't have to talk about it as much. <laughs> um, I failed miserably at that because all that happens now is now they, they read it and then they call and want to talk about it. And I still end up in the same thing. Um, but despite the, the pain that goes into writing a book, it was a blast. I, I had a great time. Um, I learned absolutely to hate myself at, at points, you know, uh, reading the same set of words over and over. I, you know, that probably went through 20 revisions, you know, uh, before it, it got to wherever it needed to be. Um, but what I wanted to do with that book, besides sort of vomiting out a lot of the stuff I normally get asked, is I worry that people don't understand or don't have enough exposure to what the risks are to be able to ask questions about them, right? So, um, you know, so there's some great books out there, Brewing Up a Business from Sam Calgione, um, the uh, How to Open a Brewery that, from the Brewers, Dick Cantwell's book from the Brewers Association, um, some really great stuff out there. But then the legal section is about six pages, you know, or eight pages. Uh, and I'm like, well, I make my living in that eight pages. Um, there's so much more there that people tend to gloss over in some cases. And so I wanted to give people some ammunition to at least understand what the issues might be so they can know what questions to ask. Um, so, you know, trademark's a great one. Uh, um, I, there's like two chapters in the stupid book about trademark. And when you say trademark, what do you mean by trademark? You know, do you mean USPTO federal registration or do you mean, um, hey, I think this name is mine and, and you're going to make me prove it, right? And how those things work. Um, so from my standpoint, it was about trying to give people some some background and what the issue is, what you should be thinking about. Some things are not going to be important. Some things are going to be like, oh, my God, I, I hadn't thought about that. That's incredibly critical. Right. Um, particularly when it comes to like, well, what does licensing mean? Right. What, how does the TTB work? How does uh, how do leases actually work? And so trying to give people, again, that here's the law generally and here's the alcohol overlay. Here's what that means for alcohol businesses. Um, so it, it's actually been amazingly successful. I, I wrote it figuring, you know, maybe three people would read it. Um, I think in the first like six months, I sold, you know, three or four hundred copies. Uh, and then I finally convinced my mom to stop buying them. And then we started selling other uh, copies of that as well. Um, I swear, I think she bought like half of the first year's inventory. Uh, but beyond that, uh, it, it's been surprising. It's been out for about two years now. I'm getting ready. I need to start another edition of that because again, things change, right? Um, they're one of the ones that, uh, I'm talking to clients about now is the, the TAM case, 
Um, this was a Supreme Court case a couple of years ago um, about offensive trademarks, right? The USPTO said you could not register an offensive trademark. Somebody took that to the Supreme Court and they won. And no, offensive trademarks are perfectly fine. Um, and, you know, goes back to that creativity of people in the industry. There are some really creative trademarks out there, some of which are borderline offensive that maybe you couldn't register before, but now the sky's the limit on that. You may not be able to get your label approved through the ABC, but that's a different question. <laughs> um, so it's it's time to revisit that and, and um, update the edition. Uh, I'm also probably about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through my second book um, on how to open a distillery. So uh, that one is tentatively titled How to Legally Open a Distillery <laughs> if you're starting a distillery. Uh, I'm hoping to have that out by the end of the year. Oh, so that's a great resource. I haven't checked out the Beer Law book, but I am going to do that. And I, I love the I love the idea. Just give somebody a resource. You don't have to read the whole thing, but if they have a particular question on, as you said, trademarks or licensing or whatnot, switch to it, flip to it, um, and then they reach out to you for more information. So I think that's funny. Well, that I, had, I had a couple of uh, a couple of lawyers say, "Why would you write about this? Then they're not going to come hire you." And I'm like, "Eh, you'd be surprised." <laughs> right? you, know, you know what it is, though is you said you wrote it because you're lazy, but you didn't count on the fact that everyone else is just as lazy, if not lazier, <laughs> right? They don't want uh, to read anything. bank on that, yeah. Yeah, it's no doubt. Well, I, I, I think it's true too, because people process information in different ways, and particularly legal stuff. It can get complex. There's exceptions. There's, well, I read it this way, but it actually means that. So yeah, I think it's a great way to at least whet the appetite. Somebody can say, geez, I didn't even know I had to worry about this thing. Let me get a little bit of background and then I'll talk to John and get, you know, get more meat on the bone. So, well, uh, and yeah, be honest, every, just about every client I have, I have the discussion with them that I'd say 90% of what I do, you can do for yourself. Maybe you shouldn't, um, or maybe you don't want to, but you could, and, and people do all the time. It's, you know, and I'm happy to help clients wherever you want me to fit in. If you want to do it and just ask me some questions, that's fine. If you want me to do it, that's fine. It's about getting what you need that's right for your business. Um, and this is just one way to do that, right? And maybe it'll convince you, hey, I can do this all myself. Or maybe it'll convince you, holy crap, I don't want to learn how to do this myself and I need to get some help. And either way, it's a win as far as I'm concerned. So. Absolutely. Well, I do want to ask you to pull out your crystal ball here, John. And, okay. you know, everybody's asking these questions. And I think as days go by, we're getting, you know, maybe better answers on when this pandemic is going to subside or what it might look like. But from your perspective, you know, what do you see if you look into the future relative to, you know, coming out of this and what it might look like for breweries, for tap rooms in the future? Um, that's a good question. So, so far when I get asked that question or something like that, I, I've managed to deflect a lot of those because my answer is, I don't know, but it's definitely going to be different. Whatever it is, it's going to be different. Um, and just, I, I believe that. I think it's going to, that that taproom experience that we were used to um, prior to March or whatever, uh, I don't think we will see that again for another year, you know, where you're just going to have to elbow your way to the bar to, to get a, a, a pint of that, that new beer that everybody's talking about. Um, 
I think that's a little ways off. What I think that's going to mean, at least in terms of social distancing, is we're going to have to reevaluate how we use the space we have as a brewery or um, as any retailer for that matter. If you've got a space where you're allowed to serve alcohol, um, how are you utilizing that space? And it may be we have to move away from the picnic time, picnic table style, you know, everybody sit together uh, a basis. Um, or we need to be more flexible about expanding and retracting that that edge, that 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 end or, or perimeter of the, the permitted space to be more flexible around how things are done. Um, but I think what that probably means is that for the same number of customers, it's going to take more employees for the same, to serve the same, you know, pick a number, 300 people on Friday night. You used to be able to do that with two bartenders and a bar back. Now you're probably going to need five or six people. Because either you're doing table service to keep people from going to the bar, or you've got people policing, keeping other people away from each other, right? Um, or how do you, or the sanitizing, right? Those sort of things that at least for the foreseeable future, that six, nine, 10, 12 months, you're going to have a higher uh, employee requirement for the same level of service, even when you can return to whatever full capacity is. Um, so for me, what that means or what I think about is, oh, that's an increase in overhead. Okay. How do you make that up? You know, despite what a lot of, um, a lot of financial people think beer is a commodity business. The only way we get significant value add money associated to it is that taproom sale, right? Other than that, your margins are essentially commodity based. They're 20, 30%, not 60, 80, 100% margins. So if you are either having to do fewer people with the same employees or more people with, or the same people with more employees, it's going to eat into your margins. If you were having trouble before the pandemic of, you know, we're in growth mode, we're cash strapped, money's going in a lot of different places. We're not seeing the revenue we want yet. That's only going to make that problem worse. So what I could see, I could see a couple of different ways of breweries and, and other producers handling that or other retailers handling that. One I would not be surprised at is a, uh, at least an initial temporary, maybe permanent price increase. You know, we could be headed more towards the six and $7 pint instead of the $5 pint in, in some areas, um, you know, to, to cover that additional cost, that, those additional people to, to monitor, to police, to sanitize, to keep the distance or the space that you need now because you can't put 20 people at the same table. So that would not surprise me as if, if we saw that. And quite frankly, with the shutdown we've had, I don't think people would care. Just to be able to go back out to their local bar and buy a damn pint, I don't think they care about the extra dollar, you know, just to get back to that what feels like normal. Um, so I don't want to give people business advice, but that wouldn't surprise me. And that would be one thing I would sort of think, okay, how is this going to change our overall business model? 
Um, I think we're also going to see a lot bigger focus on how do I leverage my space for events versus just taproom sales? How do I make this space multi-purpose, multi-use? Uh, and what, what can I do to, to, to help encourage that? Um, I'm seeing a lot of people, a lot of questions now about, well, I have this restaurant that now I'm like, uh, you know, restricted capacity. Can I subdivide and do the other half and do like wedding receptions or events? Sure. There's some steps you need to take to do that to kind of protect yourself because everybody's heard of Bridezilla. But beyond that, yes, that's that's a possibility. And it's going back to that diversification. What do I need to do so that I can guard against this the next time? Um, I think those are the things that that I could see happening in the next two, six, nine months. Um, here in North Carolina, where I am, um, I've been watching over the last like week um, the the COVID test results, and they're not encouraging. We're we're still trending up after being fairly flat for a while, uh, and I think. Each of the last three days has been a um, has been a the the record setting COVID hospitalizations in the area. So one of the things I'm concerned about, and seeing this in other parts of the country, I think I tweeted something about it the other day. Is there is no guarantee we're not going to backstep. There's no guarantee that we won't fall back into nope. Everything's shutting back down again for the month of July. What is that going to mean? How are people, you know, are people planning for that or are they just trying to push the envelope with where we are to, to maximize, you know, stuff coming in? So I do have that worry sort of in the back of my head. OK, we're, we're not done with this yet. And I don't care how many people are walking around outside without their face mask on. We may not be done with this yet. And we need to, again, expect the unexpected and, until we, we've got a good idea that things are going to open up and reopen in some permanent way. We need to be planning still for some worst case scenario situations. Mm. Um, so, yeah, proceed. On that right note. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But hey, that's that's reality. You know, I, I totally agree with you. I think there's just sort of a there was sort of a fatigue that seemed to lead to, and, and certainly there was you know a lot of financial uh, ruin going on, economic ruin. We had, we had to balance this, but it's, it also seemed like people like, ah, we did our six weeks or eight weeks. We're coming out. It's over. And, and, you know, the stats may or may not bear that out. So it's certainly, yeah, proceed with caution. Well, and, um, there was, a um, an article I read the other day, uh, somebody was out on a Saturday night and just in this packed crowd and they asked her, you know, what, what are you thinking? And they said, well, I think at this point, if I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it. And that's fine. It'd be different if I lived with my parents who were in their 70s, but it's just me. So it's no big deal. Well, thanks for that. But, you know, you, you come into contact with a couple hundred people who you don't know. It's just they keep saying unprecedented times. And that's not entirely true. We did have the Spanish flu in, in 1918. Weirdly, about 100 years ago, um, but technology is so much different and our society is so much different. It does feel like unprecedented times. And I think, like you said, that fatigue has worn on people. Um, and I think people are making, you know, potentially could make some decisions that aren't great. Absolutely. 
Well, I would like to hear from you on lessons that you've learned during these unprecedented times. And you can answer this any way you'd like. It could be business lessons or crisis management or preparedness or legal lessons. Anything anything in particular come to mind for you? Um, well, so one of the things I, I learned years ago when I first hung out my shingle uh, is that I had to go to an office. Because if I work from home, I am a crappy employee. I will find something else to do instead of what I'm supposed to do. Um, fast forward 10, 15 years later, no, working from home was okay. That was all right. Um, and a lot of what I've read, a lot of what I've seen uh, is that that's kind of bearing out for a lot of people. Um, a lot of folks who, you know, companies that allowed their folks to work from home and previously hadn't had that ability, right? Uh, they're saying, well, product productivity really didn't suffer that much. Maybe this is something we should look at. So I think I, I learned, um, you know, at least, I won't say my generation, the generation after me um, and, and the folks just entering the workforce are much better about working remotely, potentially, than, than some of us older turkeys. Um, so I think what we may see is some more flexibility around that in the future. Uh, and the upshot with that is that reduces your overhead because you don't need as much space in a high, you know, high cost location, right? If your sales guy can work remotely and not have to have an office at the brewery, that's another, you know, 20, 30, 50 square feet I can use for a cold room. You know, that's another place I could put a fermenter, you know, those sort of things. So for the last several years, uh, I, I've, I feel like I've been saying a lot, and I don't know if anybody's been listening or not, I feel like I've been saying a lot that gone are the days when making good beer is enough. You, you can't just make good beer. Not only do you have to make good beer, you really ought to be making great beer. And even if you're making great beer, that may not be enough. You also need to run a business. You know, and I think what uh, Ken Grossman has said a couple of times, if he said, if I tried to start Sierra Nevada today and the mistakes I made then, I wouldn't have survived. The only reason we survived was we were one of the only choices, right? And so we had customers and uh, that were willing to work, you know, to live with that, you know, those issues. Now, when every store shelf is packed with choices, it's a lot harder. So now running that business, you can't just be a good brewer. You have to be able to look at things like diversification. Have I optimized this lease? Have I built in you know, enough flexibility with this? Have I, do I have the right people, not just somebody who'll show up? You know, uh, you know what happens when um, you know, I give my sales guy 10% uh, of the company uh, and then I have to lay him off because I can't afford it because there's no offsite sales? He still owns that money. He still owns that. And I don't know if I can bring him back. How does this fit? Right. So I think it, it may force us to have to at least consider a level of sophistication that we hadn't had before. Um, I think for a long time, probably since like the mid 90s, it's it's sort of been a build it and they will come mentality. If I hang on a shingle and the beer is good enough, I don't have to worry about this. And I don't think those days are here anymore. Um, so whether it's due to pandemic or, or outside pandemic, you're seeing more and more focus on 
are you doing sound business practices and running a business, not just this craft or artisan product that we're really proud of? You've got to do that and the other piece. Um, so I think that would be one of the ones that I've, I've seen some people kind of open their eyes and go, okay, we need to do some things differently. Yeah, absolutely. Focus on the business side of it for sure. So John, this has been fantastic. A lot of great information. I really appreciate your time. If people want to get in touch with you or learn more about your practice, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, so, um, Twitter, Instagram, beer law center at beer law center, easy to find us on there. Uh, Facebook, same thing. Um, Drop me an email, john at beerlawcenter.com. Super easy. Website's Beer Law Center. Um, always happy to chat. Uh, I tell clients and, and potential clients, so I don't own a brewery. So talking to people about brewery issues, I feel, is like my evangelism for the industry, right? So that's what I do to, you know, and so always happy to chat, answer any questions people have. Um, you can find the book on Amazon. So delivered right to your home. Nice and easy. Don't even have to go out and see normal people. Uh, but yeah, anytime anybody wants to chat, give me a, give me a call. Happy to chat. That's awesome. All right, John, thanks so much and, uh, stay safe and we'll talk soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. This has been a blast. Thank you for listening to the craft brewery finance podcast, where we combine beer and numbers so that you can improve financial results in your brewery. For more resources, tools, guides, and online courses, visit craftbreweryfinance.com. Don't forget to sign up for the world-famous Craft Brewery Finance newsletter. Until next time, get out there and improve financial results in your brewery today.